Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. What I actually share and what I actually use as a tool to answer that question, Serenity, is something I call the success triangle. So actually just picture a triangle with three S's on the corners. One S stands for sales, okay? how well something does, how many it ships, right? The second S stands for social, which is all about critical reviews, uh, how well it does in the, the eyes of people you respect. If it's a book, is it is it reviewed by the New, New York Times book review? Is it nominated for a prize? Does another author who you respect say they liked it? You know, what is that social kind of corner? And then the third S is self. And how do you feel about it? What's your intrinsic feeling? And the reason I use that model, the three S's of success, that's the success triangle, is because I'm firmly convinced that you can't have all three of them. And, and so, you know, actually, they in some ways block each other. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Neil, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Ah, thanks for having me, Sorry, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Well, it's really cool to have you here. You know, uh, I, when, I, when I saw you email me and you said that we had spoken six years ago, it was so bizarre because uh, you were one of the very first like couple hundred interviews that we did when we first started the show as the podcast for bloggers, Blogcast FM. So it was kind of surreal to see that message from you and to see emails that I had sent you back then. Uh, so uh, rather than give it away for our listeners, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your story, uh, your journey, your background, and how that has led you to everything that you're up to now? Sure. I, I'm happy to. And it's funny, six years in internet time is like, to me, that's like a 30-year Friendship from childhood, <laughs> yeah. normal time. Six year of friend, six year relationship through the internet. I mean, come on, like that is a long, that was a long time, and yeah. um, and so you know, Neil Neil Pasricha, born September seventeenth, nineteen seventy nine. My parents did all the hard work. My dad's uh, from a small village in India, near Amritsar, India. My mom is from Nairobi, Kenya. They emigrated to Canada in the late nineteen sixties, um, settled in. Uh, a shady suburb, an hour east of Toronto, and you know my dad being a teacher, my mom being a bookkeeper, accountant, um, they worked really hard, and they were able to give my sister and I a great kind of quiet, happy childhood throughout uh, throughout our lives. We we got really lucky growing up in the suburbs, you know, pre everything, right? Like you know, taking the train downtown to go to the bookstore, watching the Blue Jays play and win the World Series. We didn't really appreciate. How much hard work they'd done. We didn't appreciate the uh, the fact that we always had power on in our houses. The fact that we, you know, could could just drive somewhere and get whatever food we wanted to eat. You know, around the corner. These are things that my parents kind of fought for to give us um, coming here. So I, I'd say I had a really comfortable 
and quiet and, and sort of great childhood. A couple things stick out for me. One is I couldn't sleep. I was a really bad sleeper. This is pre, you know, texting all night. So I, I went to the library every Saturday morning with my mom and I had certain Dewey decimals that I'd like navigate to words like 741.59 and I'd pick up all the cartoon books or I'd pick up all the Hardy Boys books or I'd pick up all the Babysitter's Club books and pretend they were for my sister and I would just read like like after the house went to bed I would stay up and read until I fell asleep which sometimes was you know a book or two into the night um, that's one thing that sticks out the other thing that sticks out for me is um, that love of reading eventually channeled itself into a love of writing. And so, you know, in grade six, I started the, the portable six press with my friend Scott, drawing pictures of uh, tanks and uh, writing little jokes about our, our classmates, flattering jokes. And uh, eventually in high school, I became the editor of the high school school newspaper, which we called Graffiti. Um, I don't know. It sounded very progressive at the time, and we wrote top ten lists and little articles and some opinion pieces. And then I went to. Now I graduated from high school. I went to Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. Took a bachelor of commerce degree there, but spent most of my time again, writing, you know, writing, and eventually worked my way up to being the editor of the only weekly humor newspaper in all of Canada called Golden Words. Um, it was a real ride, you know working with 15 to 20 people every week, spending probably double the amount of time we were spending on our classes putting together a comedy newspaper every week in the, in the, in the vein of like Harvard Lampoon. You know, that was sort of the style. Mm-hmm. And uh, it became a real formative part of, of my, uh, of my uh, university experience. So let's, let's flash forward a little bit. And after that, you know, I, I work. I work a number of office jobs. I do marketing for Procter and Gamble uh, on CoverGirl. I could still tell you the lengthening, separating, and volumizing properties of mascara. Um, that didn't work out so hot, you know. I think I quit just before I was going to get fired on that one. And I, uh, I then started up a restaurant chain. Uh, bought a franchise for Quiznos with my dad. I'm 23 years old and smearing, you know, mustard. Mayo on people's sandwiches, uh, 24-7, hiring a staff. I learned a lot of lessons there on leadership, how to hire people, and the fact that I had a love of developing others. Um, I think we put, put out a great sandwich and, and, and a great store, but also learned that it's not easy being an entrepreneur. And it's not easy um, when you're on your own and you get the call at 2 in the morning on a Friday because um, – you know, somebody can't close the store and the grease trap's overflowing and a customer complained that they got expired chocolate milk and their kid's vomiting at home. And you're like, this is my life and I'm losing money on top of that. So I had that formative experience and um, eventually I, uh, at age 25, 26, I went down to Boston two years, uh, did an MBA at Harvard a um, couple years. You know what? I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I, I had a love in my life to try new things. I met incredible, interesting people from around the world. It's got a huge international student uh, population. So that was just great getting to know these people. And I said to myself then in my mid-20s, I said, okay, I've learned that I love developing others. And I think I love um, human resources, if you want to call it that, in a big company. So then for the next decade of my life, from age 25 to really just uh, about a month ago, 
I worked at, in Walmart for Walmart Canada um, in the areas of leading the leadership development team, uh, working for a couple CEOs, and, and learning and development as well, always in the human resource capacity, but um, with the goal of developing you know, large groups of leaders and executives and CEOs uh, inside the world's largest company. So that's like kind of the, the resume side. But you know what? The, the more interesting side is probably what happened to me five years ago, five, six years ago when we started talking, which was that on a personal side, um, you know, I had a lot of struggles personally in relationships like a lot of people do. And uh, a couple things came to a head at once. One was my wife, I got married 26 and, and sadly divorced at 28. My wife t- telling me that, you know, it wasn't really working out from her perspective. That took a lot of courage. I applaud her for calling it out before I realized it. Um, but but you know, finding out you're going to get a divorce is heartbreaking. And it, it's you know, I don't care how old you are, how long you've been married, whatever. It's 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 a punch in the face. You know, it, it hurts. And on top of that, my best friend at the time was really struggling with mental illness, and sadly, he didn't make it. And um, he ended up taking his own life. And these two things happened very, very close together on top of, of course, having to sell a house and you know, kind of find a new life for myself. So I started up a little blog. And so we started talking about blogs six years ago. It was, it was this blog. It was 1000awesomethings.com just as a way to put a smile on my face before I went to Walmart every day. So um, a, a thousand awesome things was a longer it was a bigger number than I realized, and I ended up writing it every single weekday for four straight years from 2008 to 2012 from about age – I don't know where I am, my late 20s to my early 30s. Um, it took off. It won Webby Awards. It got 50 million hits. It uh, turned into a series of books called The Book of Awesome. Those books came out. They took off. They hit the New York Times bestseller list. They shipped a million copies. I had a TED Talk about it, the whole thing. And it seems like, you know, I should sort of say, well, that's the end and everything turned out. But, you know, the truth is, Serena, this is the part that I haven't shared with you and, and really with anyone uh, up until now is that the whole time that was happening, it's like I wasn't happy on the inside. I mean, I'd lost 40 pounds. People said, awesome, man, what's your secret? And I said, stress. Like, I, I wasn't doing anything except stressing. Uh, I wasn't getting enough sleep. Um, I'm writing these these awesome blogs every every night and the books are coming out, but I'm I'm trying to process a divorce. I'm I'm living alone. I don't have any friends in Toronto. I'm I'm actually trying to navigate that whole really tumultuous personal side, the side that, you know, it's not as public in podcasts and in blogs, but it's the side that we live and, and we feel more and I, that and that side I was a loser. You know, I wasn't I wasn't succeeding. I wasn't meeting new people in the way I wanted to, and I wasn't in a relationship that I want. You know, I wasn't in a relationship. Never mind one that I wanted to be in. And so, um, uh, it took me some time um, in my early. Th- I'm 36 now, so it took me some time in my early 30s, leading up to today, to get back on my feet. I sought out some therapy. I sought out um, processing things through my website, which helped a lot. Um, and I eventually uh, kind of started seeing people again, and and. After about a year, I met someone new, and her name is Leslie. She's a teacher, public school teacher in Toronto, and we fell in love. And I found myself shifting kind of from the observation of awesome things like on my blog to the application of awesome things like actually enjoying blowing out the candles on a birthday cake with somebody and you know um, listening to great music at a concert, not worrying about answering emails when you get home. 
you know, because a journalist wants to ask you a question or because um, I made a promise to answer all my emails by the end of the night every night. So Leslie and I fall in love. We end up moving in together. We end up getting married and we fly um, to Southeast Asia for a honeymoon, this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to just go far away, the two of us. This is like a year and a half ago now. And uh, on the flight home from the honeymoon, Leslie says to me, uh, I'm not feeling well, not the kind of thing you want to hear on your flight home from your honeymoon. So we have a layover in Malaysia. And on the layover, she goes to the pharmacy. She's lying down. I'm stressed. So we have a 12-hour flight home. And we get on the plane. She goes to the bathroom. She comes back to her seats. We're on the airplane. And she's like, I'm pregnant on the airplane. So we have no one to tell except the flight attendant. So we tell the flight attendant and she gives us like a muffin, you know, and, and like <laughs> writes, writes congrats on like the back of her receipt paper. And, uh, and finally, you know, after the books of awesome had come out, the blog had finished, you know, I, I, I eventually turned back to that thread I'm kind of pointing to throughout my life of, of like turning to writing as a way to process my new feelings and my new emotions. And I then spend the next nine months writing what ended up becoming nine secrets to happiness for my unborn child that turned into, Serenity, honestly, a 300-page Word document, um, which is a really long letter to give someone. But I wanted to put in everything I could, and I wanted to take all my experiences working as director of leadership at Walmart and, and flying on around and, and giving some of these talks after my TED Talk and my experiences with the book. I, wanted to, I don't know what it all was, but I wanted to call it wisdom, and I wanted to call it a gift, and I wanted to call it a letter, and I wanted to call it some ways to live a happy life. And so here we are now. It's you know kind of springtime almost in 2016, and... Um, I'm just about to put out that letter as a book. It's called The Happiness Equation. It's the first book I've written in a few years now. And uh, it's meant to not be the observation of awesome now, but the application of it. And so on a personal note, I've just left my job at Walmart five years after the book of awesome came out, just a few weeks ago actually. And I'm dedicating myself to this new book, um, to speaking about it to starting up a new organization called the Institute for Global Happiness, which we've just launched, and to uh, living a, a more experimental existence, seeing what works. And um, Leslie has now had our son. I used to say, like, we had, but really it's she <laughs> had. So she had our son. Um, his name is Hudson, and he's just a pure you know, delight and joy. Yeah. And um, he can't read the book yet, so I guess it's good that I wrote it in advance. So when he eventually gets to the point where he can say, like, when's the movie coming out, I'll be able to kind of give him this book. But the book is done even though he can't read it. Awesome. Well, wow. How's that for a really long life story? Oh, that was beautiful. Uh, and as you can imagine, probably it raises lots of questions. Uh, That's where- what you're good at. Yeah, the, the, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, where I want to start actually is with this uh, moment in sixth grade when you decide to start uh, the Portable Six Press. You know, yeah. I, like I've asked people various forms of this question, but that tendency to look at something and want to start something and do something and build something. Do you think that that is something that is just inherently built into you because of the way you were raised, because of the, your, your background, your experiences? Or do you think that's something that could be learned and developed? I definitely think it can be it, it can be learned and developed. That's my personal feeling. I feel that way because I can remember my teacher in, in grade six and sixth grade, Mr. Olson, um, who 
was excited about the idea and, and provided us with access to the photocopier by giving us the teacher's code, you know, and saying, hey, uh, what do you need to make this a hit? Do you want me to, like, tell the other teachers about it or do you want us to – like, he helped us to develop it. Maybe he wanted to do it as much or more than we did. And – um you know, at lunchtime when it was freezing cold outside in the winter and me being terrible at sports, he said, well, you can stay in if you want to work on the newspaper. You, you weren't really supposed to stay in the mm-hmm. portable at lunch, but if you want to work on the newspaper, well, that's kind of school, so you could stay in. So us, you know, 11-year-old nerds got a chance to not play sports with the jocks and, and sort of stay inside. And um, And I feel like he instigated it and helped us and pushed us, and we got to feel that thrill but it came from a lot of people who helped us along the way. Hmm. How do you find it if you haven't had those people who have helped you along the way? Well, I mean, I, I, there is some unique thing about, like, look, until I had a child, I, 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 would, equate it, I would have equated it to that feeling, you know, to, to sort of giving birth to something into the world that was created from you. And that could have been the Portable 6 Press when I was 11. Uh, but it also could have been a letter that I, I wrote to a friend, or it could have been, um, you know, uh, the photo books that my wife makes at the end of every year. You know, she just she puts all our photos together into a book and prints them out, and like we have a little book that we put on our pillow. And you know, I won't say every night, but many nights we'll be like, "Hey, how about 2011 or 2014?" And we'll like flip through one of the years of our of our lives together. And so I get a high from that creative release of, of, of having something new come into the world. And so if you have that, then the teachers and the mentors and the, the podcasts and the, and the books can help you, um, you know, both justify and value those emotions and kind of strive to keep feeling them again and again because you, you find new tools and new motivations. But if you don't have that feeling, I'm kind of coming back on the question before now, mm-hmm. then maybe that's the part that needs to be cultivated first. The, uh, the, the feeling of having a high because you did something yourself that got to come out. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. I think that if there isn't some level of intrinsic motivation involved, like if it is about all these external byproducts, it's really, really hard. Oh my gosh. Of course. Totally agree. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have a secret in, in, in the book actually called secret number two. Um, uh, what do I even call it? It's right here. And the whole thing. Oh yeah. The four, the four simple words that, that block all criticism. That's, that's actually the secret. And, and the end of the secret is like, here's the, here's the Coles notes is do it for you. Those four words. And I actually tell the story, Serena, in that, in that, in that secret, um, about how I got, I myself, when I started a thousand awesome things.com, it was just WordPress. Like I typed how to start a blog into Google, press I'm feeling lucky, takes me to WordPress. There's a button at the top saying start a blog here. I press the blog. Click a template. I want the blue one or the one with stars. You know, you pick one, and suddenly you got a blog, and you can't even believe. You go to another computer to type it in because you can't even believe that anyone can see it. But then, after a week or two, I start getting hooked on the fact that there's a blog counter, there's a stats page, there's like you know ways to measure my success outside of my own internal measurement, and I got hooked on that stuff. I got hooked on it. I really wanted it to be a best be a book. I really wanted to have it be a bestseller. I really wanted it to be a number one bestseller. And I went nuts trying to stay up late every night, cranking, cranking on this thing so hard, so hard. 
that I, you know, it would just kind of hit all these numbers. But the problem with that is the numbers never end. There's always new things to compete with, and you lose track. Literally, you lose track. The studies actually suggest that you actually inherently lose your your internal reason for doing something when you're given the shiny external reason. It gets lost in your mind, and so, you know, there's been studies that show that. They take 11-year-old girls and they say, why do you teach this girl the piano? And you get to feel um, rewarded by the fact that she gets to learn it. And then they tell these other girls, well, you get a ticket to the movies if you, if you teach her piano. And like, of course, the ones that are given the extrinsic reward of the ticket to the movies, they get frustrated more easily. They give up. They yell. They're so, they're so un- upset. Whereas the ones that are given the internal reason or the intrinsic reason, they, you know, they kind of go all the way. They care deeply about the results. And so I could not agree with you more that it matters internally more than externally on, on any creative project you're doing. And the hard part is how do you keep that creative and internal focus? How do you keep that front and center? Because the external stuff, it's going to pop into your, your worldview every way you look. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be a stat counter or a performance evaluation or a, a blood test or a, you know, someone saying good job or a let. Like that stuff creeps into your face all the time. How do you how do you get it out? Is the hard part. Well, so that raises a question. I think you know we're talking about uh, more than just blogs here, but really this idea in my mind of internal and external locus of control. And for the people who are incredibly driven by this external thing, is it possible for them to be shift to, to shift to being driven by an internal motivator? First of all, I think that the root is usually internal. Like yeah. you usually start something for an internal reason. I think so. I think you start something because somewhere something inside you kind of rings a bell. But what I what I actually what I actually share and what I actually use as a tool to answer that question, Serenity, is something I call the success triangle. So actually, just picture a triangle with three S's on the corners. One S stands for sales. Okay, how well something does, how many it ships, right? The second S stands for social, which is all about critical reviews, uh, how well it does in the, the eyes of people you respect. If it's a book, is it, is it reviewed by the New, New York Times book review? Is it nominated for a prize? Does another author who you respect say they liked it? You know, What is that social kind of corner? And then the third S is self. And how do you feel about it? What's your intrinsic feeling? And the reason I use that model, the three S's of success – that's the success triangle, is because I'm firmly convinced that you can't have all three of them. And, and so, you know, actually, they in some ways block each other. So let me give you an example. Self-success, you might have intrinsic motivation for building a deck or baking a beautiful cake or creating a great lesson to teach to your students if you're a teacher. Um, but you can't sell those things, and they're not really critically reviewed very often. So that wasn't your goal. You don't get that. And if you think about sales or social, they can block each other. I mean, I, I always use the example of um, the Academy Awards. Like, look at the movie that wins Best Picture at the Academy Awards. A couple years ago was The Hurt Locker. It was, my, was a great movie, one of my favorite movies of the year, tense, dramatic, you know. I was glued to the screen, The Hurt Locker. Guess what its domestic box office was? $19 million. That same year, Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Squeakwell. 
made over $200 million, <laughs> which was nominated for no Academy Awards. The point is you got to decide up front which one you want. And if it's self-success, well, you have to be comfortable with that. No social or, or sales success would follow. And if it's sales success, like Frank, frankly for my first book, that's what it was. I was like, how do, we, how do you hit the best hour list? How do you sell, sell a million copies? Like I did that, but you know what? I never got reviewed in any newspaper, not one. I never got any nominations for any awards. I never got – you know what I mean? It was, it was really – it was a commercial hit, um, but it wasn't a social hit. And I, I don't know if it was a self-hit because I was struggling with a lot of things personally at the time. On this new book, I'm thinking, OK, I'm going for the self-win and, and the social win. I want people I love and respect to like it. So let's see what happens there. So that's – you know, you pick which one you want on the success triangle and then you aim for that. And you've got to be comfortable thinking – I probably won't get all three. Even someone that gets both, like Kanye West, he's got the sales success and the, maybe the social success. Well, I don't know how he feels about it himself. You know, like what what makes him keep going? So who knows? I don't think he can get all three. I think it's like a wobble board at the gym. You can balance on two sides, but you can't get the third. Hmm. Uh, I want to ask you about uh, your background in publishing early on. You know, the the newspaper in high school and Humor Magazine. I'm curious how the things you learned then uh, and, you know, what lessons you brought from those that you've applied later on in your work and your sure. life. Sure. Well, one lesson that really stuck with me for a long time relates to the last question kind of really, I think, pretty nicely. And that was that I was working on this newspaper, Golden Words, in university, like I said, comparable to, like, say, the Harvard Lampoon or something like that, the Canadian version. Um, and uh, it was 40 hours a week. We got paid nothing. Like, like the newspaper kind of made money, but we didn't get paid anything. And our peers for the sort of serious newspaper on university campus, they got paid five or ten thousand dollars because they were, you know, really dedicating a lot of time to being the editor of, you know, getting news out on campus. Um, I got paid nothing, but I, I decided to take my portfolio one summer and mail it, you know, through real kind of mail to like the Onion. And the Uncle John's bathroom reader and you know David Letterman and all these places I thought would want a guy like me to come write comedy for them in the summer. And I got a couple hits. I got a couple people right back to me. And I, I moved to New York, to the Lower East Side of Manhattan. I rented an apartment for more than you know I'd made kind of throughout the year. And I ended up getting a job at a startup in Brooklyn working at a company called Modern Humorist for a bunch of Simpsons and Saturday Night Live writers who wrote syndicated content for uh, bigger publishing places like the funny article at the back of GQ or the back of Cosmopolitan Magazine or places like that. They wrote the pieces that got purchased for those outlets. And I'm writing with Simpsons and Saturday Night Live writers, like amazing people. And I'm getting paid, you're going to laugh, $10 a day for my efforts, uh, which is enough to cover my like commute there and back. So... Um, I do this, and I'm excited about it, and I'm rubbing my hands together. I can't believe I'm getting paid $10 a day, but at least something, to do what I love. Um, and I hated it. I hated that job so much. It was so hard. Instead of finding chemistry with people naturally, I was told who to write with. Instead of coming up with my own content ideas and saying, oh, I want to write about this, I was told to write about that. 800 words, please, about you know the bright side of getting dumped by the end of the day for Cosmopolitan Magazine. And it's 11 o'clock. You're like, I can't write it. But you have to. And it became, um, it became very demotivating. And I decided then that I wouldn't do – I wouldn't take something I loved and sort of sell it because I wouldn't be good at it. In fact, my writing was not very good for those pieces because I was being so constricted by the process. Um, 
And so that deals directly into the intrinsic versus extrinsic things. When I started my blog, I was smart enough, certainly, not to put ads on the side of it. I was like, if I do ads, I'm going to want to like, I'm going to worry about that instead of the writing. But I couldn't ignore all those extrinsic motivators, like like blog counters and Google Analytics and all that stuff that I got hooked on. So um, that's one of the things I learned about about my formative experiences writing is that you just got to do what you want to do. That's just going to be the best thing for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. 
So um, I want to ask you about your time working uh, at a Quiznos restaurant because that's, that's such – I mean you've had this <laughs> yeah. widely variety background, which – you know. and Robert Greene told me once when I interviewed him, he said that no experience in your life should ever be thought of as wasted because each one of them forms and shapes who you end up becoming and what you do later on. Yeah. And I'm curious, from the time at Quiznos, um, which by the way, I happen to think Quiznos subs are really expensive for what they are. <laughs> on a side note, I'm always like – why the hell does this cost ten bucks? Yeah, I hear you. I'm yeah. like, it's just that's a toasted a whole, that's sub. That's a whole separate story. It's I'm just like, a I'm toasted subway, but that's a whole separate story. <laughs> um, what I'm actually really curious about is, is the lessons that you learned in human behavior, human psychology, and human motivation from working in a position like that. Sure. Well, here, let me give you one. One thing that happens a lot in a fast food restaurant, or sorry, quick service restaurant, whatever you want to call it, is um, people complain mm-hmm. like a lot. Like this isn't hot enough. This is too hot. Um, <laughs> this has not enough chicken on it. This has too much meat. Um, you know, it's just like it, you can picture yourself going through the drive-thru at McDonald's. You're like, ah, they didn't put enough salt in the fries. Or like, oh, I wanted this. Not. You can just picture yourself doing it so you aren't, aren't surprised to hear me say people complain a lot. Well, the good thing is on our cash register at Quiznos, um, we put a little a little thing to help us deal with the complaints. And – I mean, I'm, I'm not sure I say we dealt people with bad sandwiches. Just like people just naturally complain when they buy fast food. So, and, and here's the acronym L A S T, LAST. That stood for L is for listen, A is for apologize, S is for solve, and T is for thank. And the beautiful thing about that model, actually, I realized later, it's a funnel, which means say 100 people complain, well, you know, 75 of them only need the L. They only need to just be listened to. Like you just nod. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. That's it. It calms them down. They're done. They walk away. They're happy again. Uh, you know, of the remaining 25, say like, you know, 20 of them just need the A. L-A-S-T, right? They need to – apology. You're like, oh, I'm sorry that that wasn't hot enough or I'm sorry that was too hot. I apologize. That's all they were looking for. They walk away. They're happy again. Again, it gets a smaller and smaller percentage. Then a few need an S. They need a solve. Oh, I'm sorry. Can I get you a free cookie? <laughs> you know? Like what is it that will help us solve this for you? And then you get to that place. You, you really just need to offer the tea. Thanks so much for bringing it to my attention. Right? Thanks so much. For, we, we take ourselves seriously. We want to deliver a great sandwich. Thanks so much for telling me that there was too much lettuce or whatever it is. And um, I love that model, L-A-S-T. I still think about it. So that's one I'll give you. Um, do you want to say, I have a second one that came to mind. Oh, yeah. Okay. The second one is I found one day at Quiznos, I looked at my numbers and I found that it was mostly uh, great, great employees. I was lucky to have a great staff. Uh, this is like a 0% turnover in an industry that has like 150% turnover. We won like awards for best customer service and all kinds of stuff. It was a fun group. I mean, maybe because I was only a couple years older than them hiring them. But I noticed in my combo sales, okay, so for, for those of you who have been in a fast food job, you know combo sales are a big deal. Like everyone wants the sandwich, but when you can sell them a chips and a drink for an extra couple bucks, that's a big margin. That's a big margin, and it's no extra work because they fill the drink themselves and they grab a bag of chips themselves. So I noticed in my combo sales that all my staff were selling like, let's just say, I don't know, a 10 percent attach rate on combos. I'm making up the number. I can't remember it. And one guy, one guy had like a 70% attach rate. His name was Richard. And I was like, Richard, how are you selling combos? He's like, I don't know. I just do it. 
And I was like, can I just watch you? And I watched him. All I did for one day at a lunch rush was instead of participating in the lunch rush, I just watched him. And I noticed something very special and magical happening. See, the thing is that at Quiznos Sub, the vast majority of customers are two guys. You know, two guys that work together down the street. They're slipping in for a little office lunch or whatever, right? Don't get me wrong. All kinds of demographics like Quiznos, but selling a 12-inch you know, big steak sub for, as you pointed out, $10, like two guys are a pretty common uh, customer. So what he would do, what he would do is he would say to the first guy, I don't know if you know, he even knew he was doing it. He'd say to the first guy, um, uh, oh, sorry, what happens is one guy offers to pay. So one guy's always like, hey, I got this, man. You know, like it's on me. You know, like it, it, they kind of offer to grab the lunch. One guy offers to do that. What he would do is he would nod to the second guy, to the guy that was getting the free lunch. And he'd say, you want the combo? Like nodding <laughs> to that guy, to the second guy who was just offered a free lunch. You can't just say yes. And the first guy who's creating goodwill, who's creating goodwill by offering a free lunch, has, has the risk, has that goodwill, like it's at risk now. You can't just be like, no, no, don't get that. That's I'm, I'm not going to pay. I don't. My offer for lunch does not include chips. <laughs> you know, you can't say that, right? So, so the first guy always jumps. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Get, get, the, get the combo. Go ahead. It's on me. The second, you, and you never want to buy someone a drink and not get a drink, right? So then the first guy's like, make it two. And like he was doing this with every person. One guy offers to pay. He turns to the second guy. You want the combo? That second guy doesn't know what to do. He pauses briefly. The first guy jumps in. Yeah, you want the combo? It's on me. And make it two. And like it was unreal. I just noticed. I'm like that is so interesting. I think the takeaway is scripting is – like it was just the words he used and the way he used them meant he had like a huge um, attach rate and no one else in the store had that. And they were working right beside him. Like they were one foot away. It wasn't like you know they didn't hear him. It was just – really something special and that's kind of i learned about scripts and and just sort of like you know wanting to give people the thing they're actually offering right in this case he was offering generosity and um maybe the timing of the combo question created additional generosity and preserved the generosity i don't know how you think about it but that's just one of these stories i remember wow um, well, be aware of that next time you're offering someone to buy something. Yeah, I will definitely be aware of that <laughs> next time I'm, I'm with a friend and in a fast food joint. I would been buy you a sandwich. Does yeah. not include drink. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk about the, the personal aspects of this because uh, they're so interesting to me. I mean, especially the divorce at a young age and in you know an Indian community. I mean, we're both of Indian descent, so yeah. I, I've always thought about the, the two things like this. You know that. There are so many things in an Indian community that have stigmas associated to the mental illness being another one. And then, of course, the whole marriage thing is just an episode in and of itself that you and I could do. But I guess what you, my question for you is how you navigated that period of your life after that happened and, and managed to come out of it, um, also keeping in mind sort of the, the cultural issues that come with it. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It's a great question. I, I, I mean, the first thing to say right now is there's no silver bullet. Like, it's not like, oh, you just do X plus Y and you're done. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's really, I think, three things for me. Uh, the first one was I created a blog and it became extremely therapeutic because now I created an online community with people that didn't know I was going through a divorce, right? They're just commenting mm-hmm. in the comments and I could email them. They could email me. It was like people from around the world and they'd send me pictures of them with the blog or the book. It was like, 
wow, I had a world. And guess what? It was positive focused. So I made the blog a thousand awesome things. I could have just as easily written a thousand terrible things, but <laughs> awesome put my mind in a certain headspace, right? Like I, I basically created a gratitude journal. I essentially focused on something positive and journaled about it and thought positively about it at the end of the day. Now I actually have all the positive psychology research to back that up. University of Texas study called How Do I Love Thee? Let Me Count the Words, saying 20 minutes of journaling a day like dramatically increases your happiness. And a big study on five gratitudes a week, the power, the power of just writing down five gratitudes a week, which by the way happened to be the exact number of awesome things I was writing a week. Like I can find the studies later, but it was just the act, right? So the first thing, I said there's three things. The first thing was starting a blog. I created an outlet, okay? The second thing was legitimately therapy. And I mean actually professional therapy, you know, seeking out for the first time in my life, does anyone know someone I could talk to because I'm crying myself to sleep. Like I need someone. I, just, I need someone to talk to so desperately. And if any of my friends took me out for a beer – you know that would turn into a four-hour session of, of the therapy, but they weren't therapists, mm-hmm. and that's critical that I point that out because my friends didn't know what questions to ask. They eagerly would want to talk about their own situation, as they should. We're friends. Yeah. We're not. He's not. I'm not paying them for a therapy session, and um, I wouldn't progress. And when I finally found a therapist, it was like I got to progress faster. Uh, I remember my first therapy session sitting down and saying, I don't want to be divorced. I don't want to be part of a group of people for the rest of their life that was married. Ugh, I don't like that. And like that's where I – like you know, that is just an example and like so we worked through that. And then at the end of that session, I was like, oh, I'm over that part. What's next? What's my next thing I'm worried about? That I'll never have kids again or that I'll never be, you know, be loved again, whatever. You work through that stuff. So I said three things. First thing is the start in the blog and outlet. Mm-hmm. Second thing is therapy. And the third one – is the magic of time. I mean, honestly, a year after my divorce, I was just better than at the time. Yeah. Um, and so those are the three things I'll give you. But then you asked about the sort of, you asked a tangential question about the Indian community. And you're right. Like, um, there's a lot of taboos in the Indian community, some of which I already broke. For example, I did not become a doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> you and I have that so, in common. So, so I'm like, all righty, I'm already the black sheep at the at the uh, at the party, you know? Like, here's my son, the cardiologist. Here's my nephew, the anesthesiologist. Here's my son. Um, he's in business, or you know what I mean? He went to. He's a writer. Ugh. Um, <laughs> and so I already broke some of those taboos to the point where I didn't care about them. That's the critical takeaway yeah. there. It's like I already. I was already not the right, you know, I already didn't fit into all that stuff. And I think my parents helped me a lot through this because they, I mentioned it briefly, but they, they came over to Canada in their 20s. Like they were in their 20s. And they didn't have family here, really, not much. You know, my parents, um, kind of most of them were not here, um, were not alive. And they settled in, I said, a shame. 80 suburb, an hour east of Toronto. Well, that's another polite way of saying it was kind of a blue collar. You know, it was a GM town. Uh, you could compare it to like a like a Flint, Michigan, or uh, you know that kind of a Detroit kind of thing. And um, it was it was not not multicultural. Like, my, but my parents had a choice. They could they could settle downtown Toronto in an Indian community near the temple and near Indian food and, and a place to buy saris, and that would have been great. And some of their relatives did that, and that's that's a great choice. They chose instead to immerse themselves in an extremely Canadian society without much of, of people of their background, and instead go on like canoe trips in the summer and downhill skiing in the winter and start eating meat and go to barbecues where they're like hamburger. Never had beef in my life. 
I'll give it a shot. Let's go for it. And so their mentality was already like that. I, I grew up in that mentality, which I didn't appreciate until I was older. But my parents were just like, whatever. It's, you know, maybe it's because their parents weren't, weren't alive or maybe it's because they were on their own anyway. And they just wanted to like, we got a Christmas tree, Srini, because I came home from school one day and I was like, my friends have a tree in their house. And they're like, okay, let's get one. Like, we're... Merry Christmas! Like, you know, all of a sudden, but they hadn't celebrated it growing up. So they were just trying to fit in and learn Canadian culture. And so uh, there's some downsides to that. My mom speaks eight languages. My dad speaks five. I speak one because my parents were trying to speak English, you know, in our house. So I maybe lost some of that stuff. But at the same time, I feel thankful for it because it helped me, I think what you're pointing out, in an older age, be like, let's sell sandwiches or I want to go to be a writer or I want to... Uh, you know, I was doing things that were, I, I guess you wouldn't say the unconventional necessarily. They were, they were definitely um, uh, different, but they were unconventional for the Indian culture, and it was okay because my parents provided me that that bubble to operate in, and I broke some of the rules early, so I was okay with it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, one of the things I've always asked people uh, is about the difference between post traumatic uh, stress and post traumatic growth, and it, it seems like you kind of started out in this phase of post traumatic stress, but pretty rapidly evolved into significant post-traumatic growth. Um, <clears throat> so lots of questions rise from that. Uh, the first is, is, do you think that there is something that distinguishes the people who have an inherent ability to navigate a situation like the one you did with the reaction and response you did? And I'm asking this because I've you know, personally dealt with periods of severe depression where I could not have even thought of the solutions that you were thinking of. Um. Well, I mean, you're you're asking an incredibly deep question, right? You're asking kind of the uh, the nurture nature type thing, and um, I don't know the answer. I I feel like I um, have maybe gained enough wisdom from great leaders in my life to to think it's somewhere in the middle. You you know, like it's um, there maybe is some inherent qualities that people can navigate towards that may come from a, a young age, but also just mentally the desire to move and to grow. And to study and to and to try is is something you can I think learn. Uh, I'm not saying for severe depression uh, because of course we all know that mental illness uh, affects you know one in four, one in five people. Um, you know it's 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 huge. It's it's all you know. I would even maybe go so far as to say that almost all of us have some uh, elements of mental illness. I certainly um, you know both my wife and I have have a lot of. Um, of it in both of our, you know, kind of families, extended families. And so, um, and I shared my, my story with my friend, Chris, um, you know, uh, and so I'm not going so far as to say like, oh, you can just cure that with a snap of a finger. But what I will say is more and more positive psychology studies are coming out saying, you know, things like Penn State University, three brisk 20 minute walks a week, actually in their study outperformed people on antidepressants and people doing both taking antidepressants and going for the walks. The three 20-minute walks a week outperformed both groups. I, I go through that study in the happiness equation in the book. It's one of what I call seven things anyone can do in 20 minutes a day. If you just want to jack yourself a little bit on happiness, like just go for a, a brisk walk. We all know that. You know, yeah. um, you kind of know that, but you just – you don't necessarily – do it. Right? It's hard. The hard part is getting up out of the out of the dent you've made on the couch. Like that's the hard part when you're in the in the low. Mm-hmm. And so for me, um, 
I had the blog, I, I had the therapy, I had the time. Those were the three things I gave you. But also what I had was early on in my process, somebody said to me, you should give a TED Talk. And that happened early. And, and I was nervous as hell. I, that TED Talk, which is, you can see on TED.com, you, if you watch me now, I can't watch it. I, I, can't, <laughs> I cannot watch that because I know how much pain I was in giving it. I was in I, I practiced it probably fifty times out loud in my apartment. I was sweating. I had to change my undershirt before I gave the speech. I was so much so I was sweating. I was so nervous. I say um throughout the whole speech. And you know what, Srinit, that was the first time I publicly shared the details of it, the fact that I had this divorce and that my friend had passed away. That's the first time. And you know what? Here's the thing to tell you. The response was overwhelming. Positive. Like flooded with emails, like people I didn't know at restaurants buying me drinks. Like I saw your TikTok, <laughs> like crazy stuff. Like people, I was traveling, and, and this guy pulls up a car beside me. I can't remember where I was if I was in New York or in Niagara Falls or something. He's like, "E screech, e to the stop," and I like look at this car stop right in front of me. He rolls in the way. He's like, "I'm a teacher. Just showed your TED talk. Love it, man." And then like hits the gas and like drives away. I'm like. What the hell? Like, where am I? You know, where else? What other world can we live in? But the point is, the response was so positive. The response was so positive that that I I was not. I'm not saying I was stronger to get through it. It was like I just happened to have an incredibly high amount of positive reinforcement come back to me quickly mm-hmm. as I was going through that. So it helped me. And to add to the end of the question, I still feel pain from it. Like yeah. you know, five six years later, I if I still think about certain elements of of those times, I I will still forever in my life probably feel some sadness in my heart, and and that's okay, and that's okay. It doesn't have to be like you're cured. It has to be like you can move forward. Mm. That should be the goal. So I want to shift gears a little bit and go back to the career piece of this. You mentioned that you had worked um, in development with you know top executives and CEOs. And so two questions arise from this. One is the decision to sit down and say, you know what, I'm going to do this thing every day for four years. I mean, a thousand awesome things. I mean, you and I both know that's a massive goal, uh, even though it's broken up into thousands of small parts. So two questions arise from this. What enables that level of motivation to show up day after day? And what did you learn from the people that you worked with in these leadership development capacities about how I, I would ask you to answer that previous question. Does that make okay, sense? Me, yeah. Oh, the first question, definitely. And then I think I'm going to maybe ask you to say the second one again. So, so the first thing is just stupidity, you know, like me not realizing a thousand was a big number, you know, like <laughs> literally like, cause you know, Goldman Sachs makes billions of dollars. Like, Hurricanes and earthquake affect millions of people. If you look at the media, like if you look at newspapers or you look at online, we don't see a one with three zeros very often. That does sound small because actually what we're surrounded with is actually millions and billions and trillions. And this hedge fund covers $32 billion in this, this. So a literally a one with three zeros sounded small to me. It did because it, I was like, we don't hear numbers like that small anymore. Um, and so that's that's kind of dumb. But the smart thing I did, the smart thing I did was I made it public. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's not just a diary on my nice end. It's it's public, and it's a countdown. So my first post was not number one. My first post was number one thousand. Broccoli flower. 
the strange mutant hybrid child of nature's ugliest vegetables, broccoli and cauliflower. I, I apologize profusely. I've had to apologize for that for six years. I didn't think anyone was going to read the blog. So I was like, whatever. I wrote it in two seconds. That's my proof that I just made it up on the spot. And then the next post was number 999, uh, the last little triangle of potato chip crumbs on the corner of the bag and they go through like the dump truck method for like tilting the bag and like drinking the chips and you know what I mean and then I go I was like excited to write that thing and then 998 but the point is it was a countdown which means it had an end to it right like there was there was a light at the end of the tunnel the whole time through and that helps you on those nights when you're like I got nothing and it's 1158 and I'm supposed to post something at midnight and I wrote here's an example I wrote like number 653 ducks because they can walk, fly, and swim. Ducks three, humans two. Awesome. <laughs> you know, like it's like something. You know, like everyone makes fun of you the next day in the comments. Like, oh man, you out of ideas, buddy. You know, like. But the point is, because you got through that day, you then have energy for the next day. Mm-hmm. And actually, this is something I talk about in Secret Number Eight in my book, which is the secret to getting anything done that you don't want to do. How to conquer any fear? All you do is flip. The two words, motivation and action. That's all you do. Right now, everyone thinks, most of us think, you got to do, you got to be motivated and then you have action. Actually, it's the opposite. If you have action, then you're motivated. Yeah. Action causes motivation. By doing the blog post, by doing the stupid duck post, the next day I'm like, well, I did it yesterday. I, I got a string of doing these things in a row. I can do it today. And I have newfound energy for the next day. So those were some of the variables that the public, the public aspect of it, the countdown aspect of it, and the sort of just doing it even if it sucks aspect mm-hmm. to bridge you to the next day where you have newfound energy to do it. Mm. Awesome. Now, there was a second part of your question, which yes. I totally forgot, which is about the leadership development stuff. Yeah. So, you know, working up close and personal with CEOs and people at, at sort of the highest levels of achievement, um, what did you learn about human behavior, psychology, and motivation? Oh, so much. I mean, I, I was, I was, really fortunate to uh, work for the CEO of Walmart Canada for almost four years. And he has since gone on to be promoted twice. So he's now CEO of Walmart International. Um, And I spent almost four years as his, you know, whatever you do, whatever you can to help him job. You know what I mean? Like it was, uh, from as small as rushing to his house to grab his passport for for a flight he needs to make right now, all the way to um, could you help write the speech for um, Davos or whatever, you know, whatever conference he's going to? You know, you know a couple of days before. So the the range of stuff I was doing was incredible, and I got to do that for two CEOs. I got to do that for him, and then when he transitioned, I got to do that for the next CEO. Um, that was really formative, and seeing how CEOs operated up close is a job that I'd highly recommend anyone do it. And before people say, "Well, I can't do it," you were lucky to have it. I made that job up, like it didn't exist even at Walmart. I I went to HR, the head of HR. I was in HR as leadership development. Um, I was running leadership development. I went to the head of HR and I said, "Can I can I pitch you on an idea?" And here's an article from the conference board saying why this job is an important one. And here's an outline of, of how I think the job could look. And, and the way I pitched it, here's my pitch, Shirney, is the way I pitched it, as I said, if for less than 10% of the CEO's salary, <laughs> and I didn't know what his salary was, uh, for less than 10% of the CEO's salary, 
uh, I can make him 10% more effective, then it's, it's worth it for you to pay me to do this job. And I, I made a guess that I'd be getting paid a fraction of his salary, like way less than 10% of his salary, but I would promise to make him 10% more efficient and 10% more effective by helping to manage his time, his energy. I would do little charts on how he was spending time internally versus externally. I would um, redesign the corporate meetings that he was running to make them half the time. I, I go through some of this in, in The Happiness Equation where I talk about you know, uh, we save 2.5% of total company time because I just redesigned one corporate meeting. You know, uh, and I and I downloaded sound effects, and I, I rang gongs, and people were close to their five minute mark, and I cut people's microphones off if they went over five minutes. Like you, you actually couldn't hear them speak, so they had to walk off the stage. And suddenly, everyone was petrified of the new meeting. So guess what? The meeting was on time. Like it was a twenty minute meeting now, as opposed to like an hour. So so I did all kinds of stuff up close and personally, and I created the job myself. And I pitched it to HR. I, I waited the months for them to get back. I pitched it again. I, I wrote it down. I, I studied other people that did this job. And then I created the job and I did the job. So I, if anyone, you know, I, I think working for those leaders, and you, you know, you've had, you've had that. I, I mean, a lot of people that we both know um, have had that. You know, um, Ryan Holiday often talks about his, his experience um, kind of working, working for Robert Greene early, at an early age. You know, you hear these experiences and they're, they're huge, right? Because you get to learn from a master at a young age. So, for me, like summarizing what I learned from from some of these leaders is is kind of like a whole other podcast. But <laughs> I but I could tell you that a lot of what I learned, a lot of the ways that they think, are first of all very similar to you and me, with just a few tweaks, just a few just a few little hacks. And I, I'll give you one to answer this question. I'll give you one. Okay. This was the result of. Um, and it's secret number six in my, in my book. But this is the result of studying a couple of CEOs at Walmart and then interviewing a number of, of them outside of the company and some artists and stuff. And, and the, the thing was this. The average person is making over 300 decisions a day. We all have decision fatigue, yeah. right? It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a part of the brain that we, that we um, spend, but we don't realize that we're spending it. So you know, at the front of the grocery store, you're met with all the sugar and all the chocolate bars because you just picked from 30 <laughs> kinds of salsa and 12 kinds of fish sticks. So you're tired. Um, that's why people rust-proof their car, or you know, add the two thousand dollars thing at the end of the at the end of buying a new car. They're like, well, at this point, you know, I've spent thirty grand, so just whatever, you know what I mean? And and what I found that people were doing was actually filtering their decisions using a framework that I that I draw in the book, and I call it the space scribble. Think of every decision you make, Srini, on a two by two matrix of time on one axis and importance on the other. So everything takes either a lot of time or a little, or and it's not very important or it's a big deal. Well, right away, the first thing these super leaders were doing is any low-time, low-importance decision, right away, the answer, what you put in the box, it's automate. Automate. And it's not going to be a surprise for, for you or your listeners because you're already there. But for a lot of people, like like I'm thinking about how I'm getting to work every day instead of just following the Waze app. You know, I'm thinking about what to take for lunch every day and who I'm going to eat with and where, where we're going to go instead of just making double dinner the night before and taking leftovers. Like, like you know, there's so many things that go into that bucket, the low time, low importance. Then the next bucket is low importance, high time decisions. These are things like, you know, emails all day, right? They're things that like text messages all day. Average person checks their phone 150 times right now uh, a day. You know, it's ridiculous. And for those ones, um, uh, these leaders would regulate that. 
Okay, so one of the CEOs I worked with, um, you know, he had no social media, he had no um, phone, like 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 no way to access him via phone. Therefore, no texting. Therefore, no. You know, he wasn't on the same like messaging service everybody else in the company was. Um, he limited and regulated every access point to himself to simply in person. Um, and it sounds like a terrible thing to do, but actually, it actually made him extremely efficient because he would simply walk around and talk to people. And and if you wanted something from him, you had to meet with him, and that was inconveniencing you, but it was way better in terms of the quality of the decision or advice you'd get from him because he'd actually thoughtfully be considering it rather than checking his phone and his texts and his phone ringing and all that stuff. It never distracted him. Uh, so it's regulate. And, you know, people can do this with email windows and stuff like that too. Or, you know, here's an example. My, my wife and I, we regulate. We regulate fixing our house. We have a really old house, Rennie, and like every day or two something breaks. Like, you know, not like the door squeaks or, you know, the toilet's still running funny or, you know, we chip the paint and we got to repaint it. And so our address is 276. I won't tell you the street name, but it's like 276 on the street name. So we made a little chart on the inside of one of our cupboards. It's called 276 Day. Anytime I see something wrong that's a pain in the ass with our house or my wife sees something wrong, we just write it on that chart. One Saturday morning a month, we do 276 Day. It's booked in our calendars, and we just fix all those little annoying things about our house in one fell swoop, mm. but we regulate it. Now, I've talked about automating. I've talked about regulating. On the decisions that are uh, high importance but low time, like picking your kids up from daycare, like saying hi to your team in the morning, those leaders would just effectuate it. Effectuate. It's a big word, but it just means get her done. You just execute. So the beautiful thing about the model is once you automate, regulate, and effectuate all your decisions, you're left with only the high-time, high-importance decisions, like the big ones, the where am I going to work, who am I going to be with, what am I going to do? And those decisions, you finally have room to debate, to mentally chew on over a long period of time and give them the energy that they deserve. And so that space scribble is one that I created for the happiness equation, but it's, a, it's based on my experiences working for and interviewing a number of these CEOs, billionaires, artists, you know, successful New York Times bestselling authors, and saying to them, you're really busy, how do you do it? And that answer, the, the box is that answer. That was awesome. Uh, well, Neil, this has been phenomenal. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Hmm. What do you think it is that makes someone unmistakable? You know what? Uh, I think that there's been a nice thread throughout this entire podcast um, about we've really been talking about intrinsic versus extrinsic. What we have been doing, of course, you and I, is, is very naturally talking about the value and importance of focusing on intrinsic motivators, the science and the studies that point to that uh, and show um, kind of the negative side effects of, of valuing extrinsic motivators. Though, though they can be, you know, of course, positive in the short term when you hit the numbers that you're aiming for and so on. But one thing I don't think we've talked about enough is that that is typically a struggle, right? It's generally for most people a struggle. And, and um, I know you've had Derek Sivers as a podcast guest uh, and, I, and I loved – your, your interview with him because like that, that is someone who's 
strikes me as unmistakable because he's really following his heart and doing what he loves and and that's the most important thing to him and um I have those four words, right, in my second secret called do it for you. And after each of them, I put a period, like do it for you. And, and because I actually want to pause on each of those words. Do means output, create, uh, build, um, make, uh, you know, not buy, not, not borrow, not steal, but like, like do it, do it. And, um, the for you part is like actually your own self-interest and your own satisfaction must be enough. And so I think an unmistakable person um, is John Lennon. You know, most people who experienced his level of sales and social success with the Beatles would never have privately told John, uh, you know, uh, John George and, and Ringo that he was going to leave the group. But he did. And years later, in the last interview he did before he died – uh, Playboy interview in 1980, I think it was. Famous interview. It's an incredible read for anyone that hasn't read it. It's like a 40-page interview when they did 40-page interviews in magazines. Um, he was asked, you know, what do you think will have a longer legacy? Your, mutal, your music with the Beatles or your solo music? What do you think is going to last longer? It's, it's pretty, you know, crazy question because he, he died just soon after, before the interview was actually published. And he said... That is for other, others to judge. I don't stand back and criticize. I do. It's not for me to tell you if Imagine is going to be more successful than I am the walrus. I don't stand back and judge. I do. And so what makes someone unmistakable to me is to do it for you and constantly struggle internally, externally, to try to make sure that what you're doing is most satisfying to yourself because I think that's when you'll do your greatest work. Awesome. Well, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. And it, it's been just such a pleasure to connect with you after six years. Hey, yeah, absolutely. And uh, my pleasure as well. You, you're doing the hard, I think you're doing the hard work. I'm lucky enough that I get to call in and, and be on your podcast, but I think to create and put this together and to organize it and to execute it and to sort of talk to all these interesting people from around the world and, and put it out for other people to just have is like a huge gift. Well, I really appreciate you saying that. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Wednesday on The Unmistakable Creative. Sukumar Rao once taught me that your happiness is your greatest gift in this world. And most people take their greatest gift, this beautifully wrapped package that they have, and they give it away. And they give it away to people who really haven't deserved it. So he used to say, when you give your happiness away, you're giving, you know, whether you give it away to the bus driver or to the um, colleague that pushes your buttons or to your parents that stress you out or to anything, when you give your happiness away, giving them the greatest gift you've ever been given. And, you know, are they worth it? Are these people... Are these people worth you giving the keys to your happiness? And I remember that resonating and going, yeah, I want to control my happiness. I control the keys. Amelia Zivotoskia joins us to talk about science-based tools for happiness, resilience, and peak performance. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.